0: Uh, If you have a Bible, if you want to find Exodus chapter 7, we're in this kind of second part of Exodus this week. Last week, we were talking about uh, where Moses and Aaron go uh, go before Pharaoh and Aaron throws down his staff and it turns into a snake and eventually swallows up all the other snakes that the magicians produce. And we were talking about how we believe in a God who's above all the other gods that our God is sovereign and in charge. Uh, and this week we're kind of taking on the next step. We're going to look at uh, the, the plagues that then follow uh, that God brings. The, the plagues, a good way to describe a plague is a blow, it's a strike. And there's strikes, blows that God is using to take out Pharaoh. And the Egyptian people and there are nine of them or kind of ten depending on how you count them. So we're going to look at a few of them in a bit of detail and, and kind of an overview of all of them today and we're going to talk about God not just being above the gods but above your gods, our gods, the, the idols, the things in our own heart that we worship. Um, so let me just pray and then we'll read the scripture together. God we, we thank you so much that you are in charge, that you're sovereign over all things. And that can be a difficult thing sometimes for us to get our heads around, the fact that you're sovereign over everything. What does that mean? How does that work for us? But the wonderful, beautiful releasing thing is it means we can, we can trust you for everything. It doesn't mean everything happens like we want it to happen, but everything happens like you want it to happen. And we can trust you for that, we can have certainty Uh, in our relationship with you we thank you God that you're uh, the God over every part of our life and this morning we want to bring all of that into the light we don't have anything in us that's hidden away that's just ours we want to bring it before you father and say have your way your kingdom come your will be done in all the different facets and parts of my life we want you to rule over them all thank you Jesus amen Right, let's get straight into the the passage. If you have a Bible, then you may feel free to use it. But obviously, the the words should appear as if by magic on the screen behind me. So let's read it together. I've got kind of three points this morning that we will go through uh, the so-called God, God versus our idols and chaos and order. Let's read together from verse 14. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you should say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord's. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that's in the Nile, and I shall turn it into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood." And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff, struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank. So the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He, he would not listen, listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Now, if you could imagine for a moment, maybe waking up tomorrow morning and, uh, and just as soon as you kind of roll out of bed, you have that stink, you know, a smell, this overpowering odour of rotting fish and blood. That would be pretty overwhelming, right? You'd be thinking, what on earth is going on? And then if you got onto your bike and you started cycling off to your office or your university or wherever you're going and you cross over a canal and you think, well, that's red. That would be a bit of a shock to the system. If you got to the Amstel and you went over the Amstel, and again it was filled with blood, and there were fish floating on the surface, we probably would all be a little bit freaked out, right? That would shock us. I think everybody would be talking about it. the The TV papers, the TV papers, newspapers, TV shows. Everybody would be here, trying to get a glimpse of what was what was going on. Um, and for the, the Egyptians, they would have had the same feeling. The Nile was the source of their life. their whole community was built around this river to the point that they worshipped the river. They would sing hymns, songs to the river in praise of it because it brought them water, not just for drinking, but irrigation for their flocks to feed their, uh, to, to water all their, their animals for themselves. Without the, 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 Egypt's a desert. You take away the Nile and nobody can live there it's just sand. The Nile is what brought them life. And so to suddenly see their source of life turned useless effectively would have been a huge shock to their their system. And I guess like the Egyptians, if you live in Amsterdam, we have a special relationship with the water around us, right? Our house where we live just down the road, we're four meters below sea level. That's Four meters is, if you think about it, that's a lot. That means if the water suddenly comes in, then even if I climb up to the top of my house, (laughs) I've still got a problem. Uh, And so we we don't necessarily worship water, but we put our trust in the dams that keep us safe. We put our trust and our taxes, our money, into making sure that we're not gonna get flooded out, that we're gonna be protected. And the same way the Egyptians had a special relationship with the Nile. They worshipped it. There were a whole bunch of gods that they would worship. Um, the god of uh, Osiris, who was the god of the Nile, Nu, who was the god of life in the river, and then a guy called Happy, who was the god of the flood, which has got a pretty awesome name. I think we've got a picture of him. Let's see. Check out this guy. Okay. Now, they're both the same person. You'll notice something interesting about him, that he has, uh, he's, he's neither male or female. He's intersex, but he has a beard. Right, and then he has female breasts and a pregnant belly, so there you go. You don't you don't see many people like that wandering around, do you? So uh, he's a bit of an interesting character, and he was he's the god of the flood, because the flood for the Egyptians would have been a good thing. It would have been something that would have happened annually, and uh, it wouldn't be like a flood in Amsterdam when we're all doomed. But it would have been a flood that would have kind of. It's not going to happen. Don't worry. I'm not. I'm not. This isn't scaremongering. But it would have. Uh, in in Egypt, it would have taken all the goodness from the river and kind of put it out onto the land around it. It would have fertilized the whole area and they could have planted crops and it was a source of life. So the flood was a good thing. So this guy, he's kind of a symbol of fertility, of new life coming, hence the pregnant belly that he has. Um, And this first plague that God brings, God's, he's kind of, he's undermining, he's attacking this God that, They would have worshipped this God. They would have sacrificed to him, the Egyptians would have done. And God's undermining him and saying, this God that you worship, that protects you, that brings you life, God's undermining that. He's attacking it. God's saying, I'm above and beyond all of that. And if we, we're going to read a little bit more now from, into the the second plague. This is not quite from verse 1, but it says, "'Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up onto the land of Egypt.' So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret acts and made frogs come up onto the land of Egypt.' Then Pharaoh called Mary's and Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people. I'll let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when, I, when I'm to plead for you and your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses, and you and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. (coughs) After the Lord did according to the word of Moses, the frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. I can't imagine a big heap of frogs. That's a weird image. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. You see, I hope you can see what's happening here. There's not time for us to go through each of the 10 plagues and talk about all of them. But what God is doing, he's, he's shaking at the very foundations of Egyptian culture. He's taking the things, the idols that they worship, the deities, the gods that they admire, and God's shaking it. He's undermining, he's opposing all of it. He's saying to the Egyptians, you think you can hold the Israelites, the Hebrews here in slavery? Well, you can't, because I'm in control of every single part of your society. Everything that you put your trust in, everything that sustains you, everything that you put your hope in, everything that you dream in. God's saying, I'm in charge over all of that. These plagues, these blows that he's doing to cripple the nation. And there would have been somewhere around 80 or so major deities, major gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Um, And they would have been clustered into three groups, three, uh, there would have been the gods that they worshipped around the Nile, the river, the gods that they worshipped to do with the land, and the gods they worshipped to do with the sky. And as you go through these plagues, you see that the first three plagues are against those that come out of the, the river, the gods of the river. And then God goes after the gods of the land, and then the last three, gods of the sky. As we go through these plagues, each time God is undermining. Every single deity, all those that they put their trust in, God is bringing to heal. And it says in in Exodus chapter twelve, a li- little bit later on, somewhere or other. Oh, there you go. That's the that's the frog god, Hecate. He's a called. He looks like he's dancing. So we don't. I don't quite know what he's doing there. It's, uh, I'm going to skip ahead. Some of here we go. It says Exodus 12. On all the gods of Egypt, I'll execute judgments. I am the Lord. That's what God's been doing through these plagues. He's been bringing his judgments. He's been executing his judgment against them. And not only does God come and defeat all the idols in Egyptian culture three, four thousand years ago, you might think, well, that's a fascinating story. I didn't know that about the plagues. But he wants to come and destroy all the idols, all the deities, all the gods that we worship that you worship in your life all the things that you put your trust in and your hope in the things that you whether you realize it or not the things that we worship God wants to come and and undermine all of those things and the thing is some of the the idols that we worship they might not be so obvious to us we not not have pictures of them uh, carved onto pyramids or onto walls. They might not be quite so in front of our faces, but they can be just as powerful and just as oppressive to us. So for instance, they, they worshipped the God Happy, the guy with the, the, or the girl, whichever way you look at it, with the pregnant belly and the beard. They worshipped him because he came to fertilize the land because they believed that this God brought prosperity to them prosperity to them. And the thing is, many of us will worship the same God. We might not have a picture of an intersex woman with a beard and breasts and a pregnant belly, but we're worshiping the same thing. Because many of us worship prosperity. I don't know if you remember the, the, many of you probably would, the financial crisis that kicked off in 2008. A friend of mine, over the months and months, he struggled to sleep at night. He was just caught up in this anxiety, um, and he was fearful of what was going to happen. And he wasn't a banker. He wasn't immediately affected by the financial crisis, but he was worried about the value of his house and the worth of his pension, how he was going to pay for his kids to go to university. And he was so worried about it and fraught about it that he lost weight, he couldn't sleep, and it really affected him. And it was because that prosperity money had become an idol in his life that he worshipped it and as soon as it was shaken as soon as it didn't look quite as trustworthy as soon as the value of his house started to go down where he put all his trust in well, my house will keep going up in value and then one day we'll be able to do this and do that and all this money is going to be released to make this happen and I can retire into a lovely beautiful cottage in a beautiful English countryside when all of that began to slip away he was shaken right to his core What do I do now? What do I trust in if I can't trust in this? And many of us, we worship this same God. We're putting our faith in financial markets of our career, of what we can get out of the world to give us life and prosperity. We worship these things. And the thing is, it's because in a way we're, (laughs) it's understandable because that's what we're made to do. It's in, it's in our DNA, it's in our design. God's designed us, whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, whether you're just here and you think, this is all just loony genes, I don't believe any of this. You were made to worship, to give devotion to something, which is why, whether you like it or not, we're all worshipping something, because that's how God's made us. And the thing is, we can either worship the right thing or we can worship the wrong thing. It says in, uh, in Jeremiah chapter two, it says they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. When you start worshiping things other than God, worthless idols, what it does is you, you, you end up becoming like what you worship. It will start to affect you. It will start to change you. You'll, you'll, you'll become the image of what you're worshiping. So if you, I guess the best or well, one of the best illustrations would be from Lord of the Rings, the book and the movies by Tolkien. If you Gollum, this evil creature, when it tells a story of who Gollum is, he was, a, I don't know if he was like a hobbit, but he was like a hobbit. He, was, he had like a human body, he looked normal. And then he finds the ring that's kind of symbolic in the book of kind of power and evil. He finds this ring and it begins to over time corrupt him and change him. And he's, he's so kind of caught up in this one thing that he spends his entire life, when he loses it, he spends his whole life trying to find it again. And then when he finds it, he possesses it so horribly. And when you, he's depicted in the movies, he's just this horrible, gross creature. And it's a picture of what happens when idolatry gets a grip of your heart, that it just begins to, to change you. It begins to mold you into something that you think, I'm not like this, this isn't who I am. Why am I making that decision? It's because there's something that's controlling you that you've given your life to. And it's what we worship in the end comes to dominate us and disempower us and destroy us. It becomes an addictive thing that has a hold over us. And it's worship in itself isn't wrong at all, but it's just where we worship that's faulty. It's it's what we're looking to that goes wrong. I think it was Martin Luther that said that our, our hearts are like idol factories. <laughs> within our hearts, within our very being, we create idols for us to worship. We create our own things even to worship, our own things to desire. We're designed to do that. That's how we're made. Tim Keller in his book Counterfeit Gods he said that The definition of idolatry is taking some incomplete joy of this world and building your entire life on it. Sometimes even taking the good things in the world. You know, money is not necessarily a bad thing. Food and drink aren't bad things. Sex isn't a bad thing. But when you take that, things created by God for good, when we take the good things and make them God things, things that we worship, That's when they begin to corrupt us. That's when they begin to disempower us and destroy us. And what God does in these plagues, and sometimes what he does to us, is he comes and shakes things. He comes and brings a plague, a blow, a strike to the things that we are worshipping. He comes and knocks their feet from underneath them. Sometimes he'll come and shake your life and you think, God, what are you doing? You know, I, th- I thought, God, you only did good things to me and this bad thing seems to have happened. You might find that there's a wonderful grace of God in that, where he's using even a difficult season, a tricky moment to shake you, to say to you, who, who are you worshipping? What is your life built upon? What are you trusting in? And it wouldn't be necessarily that suddenly the Amstel River turns to blood, but you could have something happen in your life that just shocks you, that opens your eyes, and that could just be God at work. There's a a story in the, the Gospels of where Jesus meets a man who's described as the rich young ruler, and he says to Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus says to him, go away and sell all your possessions and then come and follow me. And he's not able to do that. And he goes away disheartened and he doesn't follow Jesus. And it's not that Jesus says to everybody, the only way you can be a follower of Jesus is you get rid of everything that you own. You know, there's a bucket at the back, just empty all your pockets in before you leave. That's not what God's saying. But what Jesus recognized in this this young man, that there was an idol in his life. He'd made an idol out of his money and his possessions. And God's saying, you can't worship these two things. You can't worship me and money. You can't serve two masters, as Jesus says elsewhere. You've got to pick one. And he's not able to do that. And he goes away sad and despondent. But that's what Jesus comes to us. He'll come to you this morning and say, what are the things that you're worshiping? What are the things that have distracted you? What are the things that have taken your gaze that you've set your hope in, your dreams in? What are those things? And not only do these 10 plagues of Exodus, not only do they come and confront the Egyptian gods and undermine them, but they also kind of hint back to the very first creation story. They go all the way back to Genesis 1. And in an odd sort of way, you see, in, in Genesis 1, God comes and creates the seas, the waters. And in Exodus 7, God comes and pollutes the waters with blood. And in, in Genesis 1, verse 20, it says, that the, the, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the heavens. We see in the plague that suddenly the swarm in the water isn't good creatures, it's frogs being a menace. The swarms in the sky are not birds, but are gnats and flies bringing disease to the people. And it's like in the plague story, God is kind of almost reversing, undoing creation for the Egyptians. That which God has put in place, he's beginning to unpick because he's in control even over all of that. In Genesis Uh, 1 verses 12 and 13, it says, The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding, sealed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit, and God saw that it was good. In Exodus 10, in one of the plagues, hail comes and strikes down all the plants. In the next plague, locusts come and eat everything. All the vegetation is gone. It's destroyed. It's decimated. We see that in Genesis 1, God creates... Uh, he brings light and darkness and creates day and night. And then in the in the in the, the ninth plague, God comes and brings darkness on the land. And he kind of reverses that. And then finally, in the in the tenth plague, we see in Genesis 1.26 where God comes and makes man, where God comes and creates humanity. In the tenth plague, we suddenly see that God comes and he murders, he kills the firstborn of the Egyptian families. And God's reversing creation. He's kind of unpicking the world that he's created. And it's because in Genesis one28 we're told that we are meant to rule over creation. That's the mandate that God gives his people, that we're supposed to rule over the creation that God's created. But yet what the Egyptian gods, what they were symbolic for, what Pharaoh was supposed to do, he was supposed to be in control. They, they worship Pharaoh because he brought order. And that's how he controlled people, by the fact that he was in charge. And so God unpicks all of creation to say, you're not in charge. You, you think you bring order, but I'm going to bring chaos to undermine all of that. I'm going to unpick all the aspects of the world around you to show that you're not in charge, that you're, you're helpless before me. And he comes and stamps on him and he treads down on him. And the thing is that that's what God does in our life sometimes. He comes and destroys the idols around us. And the thing is that we, we can kind of get, we can hear a message like that, like this, what I'm saying today. And we can think, yes, I'm going to go and I, 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 you, maybe you're thinking of things in your life that you need to sort out. Things are easy to fix. And we can feel inspired to go, I'm going to go and solve this problem. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to go in this direction now. <laughs> what happens is we can kind of be inspired to, to go and be the hero of our own stories, right? We, we kind of inspire to kind of go and be our own savior. And yet, what happens in this story is that it's not that God brings chaos and then the people come back in and bring order. You see in, in, in a couple of the plagues that what happens is, is, is for instance, in the ninth plague where uh, God brings darkness over the land, in Goshen, which was the area where the Hebrews lived, it stayed light. In another, in another one of the plagues where God brings flies onto the land, he protects Goshen again, that they don't go there. He protects the Hebrews and he, he keeps their order. He protects them. And what I'm saying is, is that, you can't be the saviour of your story. You, it's it's not about God, I'm going to come and bring order to my life now. I've let things become chaotic. I've let this become a mess. This thing's now controlling me. I'm going to go and sort it out. <laughs> that doesn't work. That might work for a day or a week, a month maybe. But sooner or later, it will either be that thing comes in again to rob you or or your heart just gets pointed somewhere else. Something else ends up becoming the focus, the thing that controls you. Instead, what we do is we we come and say, God, here's the chaos in my life. I want you to bring order because I can't, because I'm not able to, because you're the saviour of my story and I'm not the saviour. I'm just not able to. I'm trusting you fully for all of those things. And... Maybe for some of you, that might even be the kind of the God that controls you that you worship. It's just that you want to be in control, right? I know sometimes that's my problem. I just want to control things. I just want to know how things are going to map out. I just want to have the plan nailed down. And then when I can't see how it's going to work out, I get frustrated. It's because I want to be in control of it. And Joe has to say to me sometimes, Matt, you're just trying to control this. Like, you can't. And and we have an argument, and then I realise that that I'm right. No, I realise that (laughs) she's helpfully pinpointed something in my heart. And that's probably true for a lot of us in this room, is that we try and control the circumstances around us. We try and dictate the course of our life. (laughs) And sooner or later, you'll realise that you can't. That you can't. We have to trust in God. We have to say, God, your will be done. Not your will most of the time, but in these things, it's got to be my will. But your will be done. I trust in you. And at the very root of all of this, at the root of idolatry, it's it, it's it, it's an issue of worship. That's what it comes down to. God's made us to worship and worshiping the wrong things. We, we, we've, we've, we've been caught up in, in the wrong pursuits, the wrong desires. So, the best answer I can give you is to worship. It's, it's not to, you, it's not, if we just say, let's go and just stop doing all these things, then all I'm telling you to do is to stop worshipping. The problem is actually you're not worshipping enough and you're not worshipping the right things. If you go in a way and actually worship what you're supposed to worship, that changes everything. It's not about stopping things, it's about starting things. It's about starting to worship Him, to give your life to Him. I don't mean just by singing songs. I mean with how you make decisions, how you go about life, how you interact with the people around you. All of those things, using them as ways to worship God, to bring Him praise through every part of your life. I'm going to stop there because there's more I could say. I've got more on my notes, but I feel it's probably just right for us just to stop and and actually just take a moment to do that. Um, we don't have any communion this morning just because of practical things of us being in a new venue not being able to get everything here. But I think it'd be appropriate for just to, us just to come and worship God together. And there might be things in your life that you know that you want to sort out. But don't just, you don't have to sort of, um, you don't have to kneel down and cry your eyes out and repent. The wonderful thing about the Lord's Prayer is, first of all, we come and say, God, you're holy. You're my Father. And that's how we can come and in, in worship to God. We can just say, God, before anything else, I want to put you first. I want to worship and adore you. And even sometimes within that, that's when God comes and does a healing work in your heart. Because God does come and bring Order. He comes and restores. He comes and brings good things to you. It says in later on in, in Psalm 105, where it's talking about the story of the people of God being led out of Egypt. It says he brought his people out with joy. <laughs> that's what happens when God sets you free, is he brings you into a place of joy. He brings you into a that's what we call Liberty Church, because we want to find joy. In Jesus, in knowing him, we want all of you to be led out of the things in your life that hold you captive and released into a life of joy. It doesn't mean everything's perfect and life's brilliant and things aren't hard. But in all of that, we're able to find our joy in Christ, in who he is, in what he's done for us.